In the summer of 1862, Union Army soldiers left Fort Laramie for a 60-mile journey south. They were charged with guarding the Overland Stage Line, purportedly to protect stagecoaches of mail and traveling white settlers from the bands of Native American tribes in the area. The soldiers ended up near the banks of the Cachalapooter River in what is now Laporte, Colorado. They set up a military encampment there with tents, ammunition, eventually cabins, and it was given a name, Camp Collins, in honor of Lieutenant Colonel William Collins, who was headquartered out of nearby Fort Laramie. Two years later, a flood rushed down the Poudre Canyon, largely carrying Camp Collins away with it. And within a few months, the military installment was, well, reinstalled, about five miles downriver. This new location stuck, even after the Civil War ended and the soldiers went home. Some hardy early pioneers stayed, and decade after decade, generation after generation, Camp Collins became Fort Collins, and it grew into the city we know today. That's what comes to mind for a lot of people when they think of the history of our city, these stories of the military camp, the flood, dusty dirt roads, and old log cabins. But life didn't start here in 1862. Not even close. For this episode, I'll be traversing through thousands of years of history, from the Ice Age to the 1800s, when the soldiers of Camp Collins were stationed in northern Colorado to protect white settlers and the Overland Stage Line mail route. And I'll beg the question, were they really the ones in need of protection? I'm Erin Udell with the Fort Collins Coloradoan, and you're listening to episode 30 of The Way It Was, the Native American history of Northern Colorado. Hi, everyone. Uh, You were probably shocked to see a new Way It Was episode pop up out of the blue, and I don't blame you. It's been a year. I had plans to do more podcast episodes in 2021, but I don't know if you've heard this, the news never sleeps, and I was pretty focused on writing the news of the day instead of unearthing stories from its past. But I missed the podcast so much and was determined to pick things back up in 2022. And what better way to start things off than with an episode I've been wanting to do for so long? It's a lot of information, 13,000 years of it to be exact, and I will definitely miss some things. But how can you claim to be a history nerd without knowing at least part of the true history of your area? Not just about the people who lived here hundreds of years ago, but thousands. It's no secret, I'm not the best person to tell the stories of Northern Colorado's indigenous peoples. I'm not Native American. And what I know about local tribal history and heritage, I've learned in just the last month or so. Later on in this podcast, you'll hear from a Fort Collins historian and author, Brian, who told me something similar. He's researched and written about Northern Colorado Native American tribes, but he's hesitant to present his work without a Native American partner by his side, someone who could add much-needed perspective that Brian and I will never have. 
In this podcast, you will hear from an elder and a tribal member of the Northern Arapaho Tribe, which was driven out of northern Colorado to Wyoming's Wind River Reservation in the 1800s. I want to start this episode off back in 1924, on a hot July day. It's when Fort Collins judge and amateur archaeologist Claude C. Coffin was hiking with his son and a family member on the northern edge of William Lindenmeyer's ranch just south of the Colorado-Wyoming border. They were on the hunt for spear points and Native American artifacts. And boy, did they find some. Over the next year, they'd collect dozens of spear points, and in the process, unearth a major archaeological site dating back to the late Ice Age. Two years after the Coffin family's initial discovery on the Lindenmeyer Ranch, bones were found on a different site in Folsom, New Mexico, and taken to what was then the Colorado Museum of Natural History. An excavation of this Folsom site in 1926 led to some pretty stunning discoveries. Uh, we've known, in terms of science, that Native Americans have lived in this continent for at least 10,000, 20,000 years ago, for over about 100 years now. Uh, and it's a great debate in the 19th century and early 20th century that was resolved at a place called Folsom, New Mexico, just south of the state line. That's Jason LaBelle. He's a professor in CSU's Anthropology and Geography Department with a concentration in archaeology. Um, the spear points that were eventually found at that site uh, and were excavated by the Denver Museum in the, in the mid-1920s were actually first discovered uh, here in northern Colorado at, at the Lindemeyer site by the Coffin family and a family friend in 1924. And the Folsom culture, uh, and we're not quite sure if it's a culture, but it's a group of people that made these particular kinds of spear points, uh, hunted bison, and the Folsom type site is just that. It's a bison kill in a processing area where they, they butchered these animals, but we don't have their campsite there. And um, very spectacular stone tools. Uh, some of them are on display at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Uh, and for many years, that, that formed kind of a caricature of what that culture looked like, these bison-hunting peoples that wildly w moved across the Great Plains and Rockies in the Southwest 12,000 to 13,000 years ago hunting bison. Well, that was the first Folsom site excavated in the late 20s. The second Folsom site excavated in the mid-30s was Lindenmeyer, north of town. Uh, and there was a bison kill there as well. But what it also had was much more spectacular kinds of things. Um, in terms of the archaeology, there was 9 to 12 different hot spots across the site that spread across over half a mile in size. Uh, and those hot spots not only contained animal bone, but a variety of stone tools, Folsom points, but other kinds of things like eyed bone needles, a piece of jewelry, hide working equipment, all sorts of things suggesting great diversity, including red ochre or hematite for staining clothing and things. And so here's the irony, right? The second Folsom site excavated is complete opposite to the first one excavated. And which one, is, which one of these reconstructions are you going to use to talk about this past culture? the one of the widely mobile uh, bison hunters, as seen at the Folsom site in New Mexico, or at Lindemeyer, probably a winter encampment where there's jewelry, where there's fine needles that are being used not only to make really cold winter uh, clothing, watertight clothing, but also to sew on beads and jewelry. Um, you know, all this kind of domestic activity. And you can only guess that uh, the, the first interpretation is the one that most people hear about. 
But the second one of this really incredibly rich artistic tradition and cultural tradition uh, was first discovered at Lindemeyer. Uh, and that's really the significance of the site is it just gives you so many different angles of that ancient uh, culture. According to Jason, archaeological finds in northern Colorado indicate that the area's occupants were foragers and hunter-gatherers for nearly all of its known history. In the past 400 years alone, northern Colorado, specifically the Cachalapruda Valley, was home to a succession of occupants over time. Tribes like the Upper Republican, Dismal River Apache, and Proto-Shoshone culture groups. Later, the Arapaho, Cheyenne, Ute, and on a smaller scale, tribes like the Kiowa, Comanche, Sioux, Pawnee, and possibly Shoshone even used the land. This information, by the way, is coming from People of the Poudre, a historical study of the Kashlapooter River National Heritage Area. White settlers would eventually come in and argue that since these tribes were widely mobile hunters and gatherers moving across the west with the seasons, that they didn't hold a direct claim on land that's now known as Northern Colorado. Here's Jason again. People like to say, well, because these people are foragers or gatherers, they didn't have a connection to Colorado. They didn't have a connection to place. These folks of the past knew this place better than any of us today in terms of every nook and cranny where every kind of resource was. They knew the location without Google Maps of where every kind of food was, knew every navigable stream, just like we rely on maps to understand highway systems. The reason they moved is because they were living off the wall of the land and they couldn't stay in one place because they would run out of their food resource. But they continually returned to those places through time memorial. So they ended up having a much deeper connection to these places than people realize or give them credit to. We've reconstructed their life ways as well as talking to descendant communities to understand that they seasonally move through these different environments. So the Front Range where we live today, where Fort Collins all the way to Pueblo is, is really great winter range for humans. And so we think that a lot of winter houses are down here on these flats, right at the edge of the mountains. If you go out to Greeley, it's actually colder in the wintertime, especially right now, uh, than, say, Fort Collins, because we're up against the mountain front. As the snow melted and as plants started to, to, um, to ripen, uh, people start moving. And we know that people move into different kinds of environments based upon plants and animals. And the Laramie Basin north of us, uh, if you go up 287 or to North Park to the west of us or to Middle Park near Kremlin, are incredibly rich. And in the 19th century, people described them as the American Serengeti in terms of the amount of animals there. And so they're filled archaeologically with lots of animal kills where people went up there. And then uh, during the late summer to early fall, if you go up to the highest alpine areas of the Front Range up at Rollins Pass, Rocky Mountain National Park, Rappo Pass, where we work, uh, there are rock walls, blinds, pits, and large walls you can see on Google Earth uh, that were used to funnel uh, and uh, and kill coal, um, things like bighorn sheep, um, to put up winter stocks of food. And as those winter stocks of food were uh, procured, people would then come back down and spend their winters down here in the Front Range. So kind of a life cycle throughout the year of moving through all these different environments in Colorado. People around here are mostly foragers all the way through uh, time. Uh, it's in other places like the Southwest or in the Eastern United States that people are farmers. Um, people could have farmed around here, but they chose not to. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle was really, really efficient, and people lived that lifestyle really until the mid-19th century. 
Let's talk about the 19th century. Euro-Americans, mostly government-sponsored explorers and private fur trappers, started entering the plains after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. But those expeditions didn't include northern Colorado until around the early 1820s, according to people of the Poudre. Fur trapping and trading did eventually grow along the banks of the Poudre and Big Thompson Rivers. These fur trappers would trade with different tribes, and some even ended up marrying Native American women. Antoine Janice, a fur trapper who married an Oglala Sioux woman, ended up building one of the first homesteads along the Poudre River in the late 1850s. Some other homesteaders came with him from Fort Laramie, and together they established the community of Kelowna, which is now Laporte. And then one of the more interesting sites that we have up on Red Mountain Open Space is a site called Lycans Valley, uh, which represents an encampment where we have glass beads uh, that are most likely from Venice, Italy, uh, gun flints, part of a smoking pipe, part of a brass kettle, uh, and surrounding that same campfire, uh, we have stone tools, and we have butchered animal bone, including horse bone. And so it looks like a, a site that dates to about the 1820s and is, represents the first kind of cultural contact in a sustained way of your Americans here in Colorado with Native American populations. And they're hanging out together. And in that early part of the 20th, or excuse me, 19th century, uh, trappers and traders uh, often intermarried with Native American populations, took on Native American wives. Um, and so there was great interaction and, and exchange there. And, and at that point in the 1840s, we had a series of trading posts established, four of them, on the South Platte River, uh, Fort Luxon, obviously people know about that, but also Fort Vasquez, which has been reconstructed at Platteville, um, Fort St. Frame. So in the 1840s, again, the cultural contact was was meant to be mutually beneficial, that the, the trapping and trading was to give goods to the Americans in exchange for hides and, and meat products. In May of 1831, a group of these fur trappers were traveling along the Cimarron route in what is now southeastern Colorado when they spotted something. A little Arapaho boy who had seemingly been separated from his hunting party. That little boy grew into a man, one who would eventually be at the forefront of Arapaho and Euro-American relations in the mid-19th century. After this break, you'll hear from his great-grandson. Hello, it's me, Erin. Missed my voice yet? (laughs) See, if The Way It Was had a sponsor, this is probably where you would hear a message from said sponsor. But you just get me, sorry. Um, So I wanted to pop in here and take a few seconds, uh, probably 40 seconds, to (laughs) sing the praises of a Colorado and digital subscription. Subscribers get full access to all of the Coloradoans reporting, videos, photos, And bonus, it lets you support some non-subscriber content like this very podcast. Without subscriber support, I wouldn't be able to put together the way it was. So if you haven't yet, head to coloradoin.com slash podcast offer to subscribe today. And if you already subscribe, thank you. Just to 
get us started, could I have you say your your first and last name and how old you are? My my name is uh, Hubert Nelson Friday. Hubert, an 85-year-old Northern Arapaho elder, recently spoke with me over the phone from Wyoming's Wind River Reservation, his lifelong home. And like I alluded to just before the break, Hubert is the great-grandson of Arapaho Chief William Friday, the little boy who was found by that fur trapping party almost 200 years ago. What kind of stories did you grow up about? Grow up with about your great-grandpa? Well, what I learned is he was lost in Colorado. He was about six or seven in 1831 and run that area a year, you know. And I guess they were camped over there by Lamar, Arkansas River running there. And uh, he went hunting one day, I guess. In the meantime, the Rapu camp moved, and he got lost. But they used to go back and look for him, and they couldn't find him until this uh, Fitzpatrick. He was a trapper. He was from St. Louis, and uh, they were headed back to St. Louis, and they they come across this uh, kind of valley, and they thought they saw a little boy down there, you know. Hubert just mentioned the name Fitzpatrick there, and he's referring to Thomas Fitzpatrick, who was the head of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company at the time. He was also, as Hubert said, from St. Louis. So they went down there, and he found uh, William. But they found him on a Friday, so that's... He got it. That's where we got our last name. They took him to St. Louis with them, you know, and then they got him educated down there. And but oh, they were they used to come back and look, see if they could find uh, his people, you know. So the one day they they found him, the Rappos that uh, they lost a boy, you know. So that's right. He got reunited with his uh, tribe, you know. Do you know how old he would have been when he was reunited with them? Uh, about uh, 18 or 19 around in there. By the time of this reunion, a lot had happened. That little Arapaho boy had grown into a young man. He was given a name by the fur trappers, William Friday, and he had been educated in St. Louis schools making him one of the few Arapaho tribal members who could read and write English at that time. While William Friday was gone, other changes had occurred on the land the Arapaho and other tribes lived off of. Emigration from eastern states to the American West was ramping up, as thousands of white settlers traversed the Oregon, California, and Mormon trails in search of cheap land, riches like gold and silver, and other opportunities. You have to take a look at what's happening in the country uh, in this time period not just the Civil War period, but in the years leading up to it and then several of the years afterwards. That is Brian Carroll, the Fort Collins historian and author I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Last year, he published his latest book titled William O. Collins, From the Mayflower to the Rockies with Stops in Between. And while the book's focus is on Lieutenant Colonel William Collins, the Army commander Fort Collins was named for, 
It also delves into Europeans' historical removal of indigenous peoples from their ancestral lands. Starting in the early 1600s with the arrival of English colonizers to Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts, and going to the American West of the 1800s, when a philosophy known as Manifest Destiny was taking hold. But there was a, a great deal of growth going on in the country, and we had uh, people that were uh, uh, migrating west. Uh, they weren't, and as they came west, uh, they weren't stopping here. This was the this was considered desert or, or you know harsh harsh territory. They were heading from the from the east, working their way, trying to go to Oregon and California and some of the more um, what per, was perceived to be the suitable lands uh, at the time. But there was a, a, a great deal of religious fervor go, uh, taking over in the country as well at the time. And the sense of what they refer to as manifest destiny occurred, and it was where God was telling uh, the people who were here that they had a right to, um, to, 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 the, la- to, uh, to the territory, to the land, um, they, that they were able to... Uh, have divine uh, uh, divine support uh, to uh, for for this movement of the land is there for everybody to have and enjoy. That sadly, the definition of everybody uh, didn't include the Native Americans who were already there in the land that most of these people had a had a pass through. If, if you hearken back to the Puritan days. And you look at the story of a lot of the things that the Puritans did. They did it in the name of God. They thought that God was giving them the right to um, to take the land and do the things that they did with uh, the Native American population on the East Coast. Uh, and, and it just kind of carried through to the uh, uh, to the to the middle 1800s. It's then in the mid 19th century that relations between Euro-Americans and Native American tribes in northern Colorado start to really shift. Here's Jason again. Things really started to change in 1851, though. Uh, in 1851, the first Treaty of Fort Laramie, or, or Horse Creek, was, was signed uh, in far western um, Nebraska on the Wyoming state line. And that is the treaty that really divvied up uh, the western plains into tribal territories. Uh, within 10 years, gold's discovered in Colorado in 1859, and in 1861, the Treaty of Fort Wise was established uh, in eastern Colorado, saying this would be the lands that the, the Shine and Arapaho will be given in eastern Colorado, north of the Arkansas. So, in a very short period, less than 15 years, you go from complete autonomy and there's no control over Native American populations to a series of treaties that make smaller and smaller. Uh, parcels of land that they can uh, operate within, according to the federal government. Uh, and this was going to culminate uh, at the Sand Creek Massacre in November 1864. And that, there have been prior events to that, but that was the big catalyst that led to uh, about five years of sustained conflict between uh, the Cheyenne Arapaho and Lakota and other Sioux nations uh, with uh, people here in Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, and Wyoming from about 1864 to 69. And in that five years, by 1869, the Cheyenne Arapaho will be defeated um, by uh, uh, Colonel um, Carr. Uh, and the following year, they'll be removed from eastern Colorado and sent to reservations in, in uh, Montana, 
the Northern Cheyenne, the Northern Arapaho will be sent to reservation in Wyoming with the Eastern Shoshone, uh, and then the Southern Cheyenne Arapaho go to um, Oklahoma. And that period from 1851 to 1870 or so, I mean, that was the big period of change for, for Northern Colorado, um, for, for tribal um, uh, Euro-American interaction. I want to jump back to something Jason said. He mentioned the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie, which acknowledged that parts of present-day North and South Dakota, Montana, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Northern Colorado were territory of various Native American tribes. By 1858, however, gold had been discovered in Colorado, kicking off the Pikes Peak Gold Rush and bringing hordes of white settlers through Native American territory. These large groups disrupted bison migrational patterns and left Native Americans competing for depleting resources. In 1861, the Treaty of Fort Wise whittled down the Native American territory previously agreed upon in 1851 to a fraction of its size. Here's Brian. Now, how would what would you do if you know if if you're going if you've got this uh, this treaty that you're being told is is straightforward? And I and I've got a copy of the 1861 treaty, and it's like it's like 20 or 30 pages of handwritten notes. These guys, the Indians, not only did they not speak English, but if they didn't speak English, they sure didn't read it. So you read this treaty, and it's I mean it's it's full of treaty verbiage. You know, so how the that's where I'm talking about loss in interpretation. How could they know what they were signing? And the government says, well, they signed the treaty. With these treaties, they're trying to get the Native Americans to settle on reservations, and you know, which is fine. They're going to give them this great big eight, thousands or millions of acres of land that they're going to end up having to be farmers. Well, the Native American population out here—they were nomads. They were—they—they they went with the buffalo. They went with the grasses. They float. They went with the season, and so now all of a sudden they're told that they've got to plant corn and potatoes and stuff like that. that. That was not part of their part of their culture. According to Brian, Arapaho Chief William Friday, one of the few English-speaking Arapaho tribal members at the time, did try to prevent the removal of his tribe from their ancestral home. In July of 1864, Friday reportedly wrote to the American Indian agent at the time, asking for the federal government to create a reservation for the Arapaho along the Poudre River. This is before the Arapaho uh, are sent to the Wind River Reservation where they are today. So he's try he's got this area here that he's trying to get the government to declare as a as a reservation. And even as uh, it, it's sad to say, I think Shivington's attack may have influenced this because in July of 1864, um, the Indian agent at the time that's assigned out here. He reports back to Washington, D.C. that uh, Chief Friday wants the north bank of the Kashlapooter River from the mouth of the Box Elder to the Platte and extending on to Crow Creek to be dedicated as a Indian reservation. And the follow-up communication is from the government saying, well, is that realistic? Can we really expect to do that? That maybe we should send them somewhere else, but... If they don't accept that, maybe we ought to, the tenor of the note is that maybe we ought to, uh, to keep peace. 
maybe we ought to declare that reservation. When Brian just mentioned Shivington's attack, by the way, he was talking about Colonel John Shivington. He was the architect of the Sand Creek Massacre. So as we all know, that reservation that Chief Friday had dreamed up and hoped for never happened. So Friday is trying to get the area where the council tree is, but an expansive area, you know, from the box elder to the plaid. That's pretty lengthy or pretty good area. And uh, I did. There, it was also reported that one of the reasons that the government didn't do it was that there was continuing homesteading along the area that Friday was seeking. Native American occupancy of the Cachalapooter Valley informally ended around 1868 when Chief Friday removed his band of northern Arapaho to the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Friday himself had to narrowly escape Estes Park around the same time when a Colorado militia came after him, his great-grandson Hubert recalled. They, they came in here and the government put him over here, you know, they run him out of Colorado and they... Uh, they put him over here at Windivers. That's where we are. Could you speak to what life would have been like on the reservation for your great grandfather? Do you know? Well, it was kind. Of, it was a tough life, you know. They are, the main thing they did was uh, hunt for food and get ready for the winter and whatnot. It was a kind of. It was tough life. Hubert has made trips down to Larimer County for much of his life. In the 1960s, he lived in the area for about a month while attending champion roper Don McLaughlin's roping school on McLaughlin's ranch near Fort Collins. Uh, you know, it, it felt like home. I was down there. I lived down there for about a month. And then I, I, really, I really liked that area, you know. And I felt like home. It was kind of bad when they run us out. I I like Colorado, you know. Do you wish but, uh, you had grown, grown up there? Yeah, I see the the they should have left us a little. They should have left us there. Hubert said that as a young man, he didn't really think too much about his great grandfather's legacy, but that changed as he got older, and now with grandchildren of his own, he tells them of Chief William Friday, how he was smart and a peacekeeper. He passes down these oral histories, as is Arapaho tradition. This is how Northern Arapaho tribal member Yufna Soldier Wolf also learned about her tribe's history, listening to the stories passed down by her parents. Like Hubert, Yufna grew up on the Wind River Reservation. Living on the reservation is difficult, you know. I never really understood until I got older and realized um, what that what people were talking about until I've gotten older and realized, you know, how we grew up is not as normal as everybody else. What What did you realize wasn't normal about, you know, your childhood than others? Um, just having to deal with um, uh, high rates of poverty, suicides, um, contamination, pollution, um, lack of employment, everything. You know, um, some people talk about, um, you know, you don't know you grew up poor and how you grow up and you realize, hey, that wasn't my childhood, you know. And so that's 
that's kind of how it was, but I um, kind of knew we were unique, we were important, we were, you know, tribal people who were have a different experience than the rest of America, um, and partly because of what my dad used to teach me. Yufna's late father, Mark Soldier Wolf, was a well-known tribal elder, storyteller, and historian. He came from a long line of chiefs who led the northern Arapaho during their time in Colorado, and in 1876, his great-grandmother even participated in the Battle of Little Bighorn. Yufna was the youngest of ten children, and remembers spending a lot of time with both of her parents. She learned about northern Arapaho history through them, and heard their first-hand accounts as survivors of St. Stephen's, a reservation boarding school where they were forced to attend as children. So if you kind of know the history of every tribe, the government basically wanted all our resources and our land and had all of um, tribes segregated to reservations where they had limited amounts of food, limited amounts of health care. And it was a plan, right, to assimilate us. Um, And they say that um, that's the model um, that was to assimilate tribal people. So that history of taking our resources, taking our land from us was that excuse of, well, they're not using it, so let's go ahead and, you know, segregate them to a land and hope that, you know, they survive in the future, right, and put all these policies behind it. And um, that history plays a huge role into my family today. Uh when we talk about anything, um, basically about them surviving boarding school, that's the whole reason why they were sent to boarding school. That's the reason why um, a lot of people, families, um, older generations suffer so much because they weren't treated well at boarding school. Um, imagine sending your children to somebody every day who did not like the way you looked, the way you talked, the way you dressed, and what you believed in spiritually, they would, they never liked who Native Americans were, so they wanted to beat it out of us. Some of us never survived. The ones that did came away with um, lifelong scars, you know. Mark Soldier Wolf and his future wife both survived their experiences at St. Stephen's and went on to tell their children about them. And despite the school's efforts to suppress his northern Arapaho culture, Yufna said her father ended up doing the opposite. He dedicated his life to preserving his tribe's history. By November of 2018, when Mark Soldier Wolf died at the age of 90, he had amassed more than 55 plastic totes full of northern Arapaho historical documents and educational materials, everything from papers to videotapes of him telling stories. He left the collection in the care of Yufna, but made two things very clear. One, he wanted the collection to stay together. And two, well, here's Yufna again. The American Heritage Center in Laramie had proposed, well, um, maybe we can keep it here and we'll keep it here. If people want to study it, they can come down and study it. But that's not what my dad wanted. He wanted it to go home. And as you know, Colorado was our ancestral home. We were forcibly um, pushed out of there after Sand Creek Massacre. 
and we were politically put on the reservation we're on now here in Wyoming. And so when he was a young boy, he would always travel back down to Estes Park through Fort Collins. And um, driving with him as he got older, he would tell me all these locations along the way and what their names were. But um, that was his home. You know, he traveled there when he was nine years old on a wagon on very many times throughout when he was a teenager with his grandmas and grandpas. And um, he would he knew those places intimately. And so to to him, Colorado was home. And so as he got older, he'd always say, I want this, this collection to go home. Last year, the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery and its history archive agreed to serve as the temporary home of Yufna's father's collection, at least until the family can secure a more permanent location for it. Eventually, Yufna said she dreams of having the collection digitized, so more people can enjoy what her father spent his life compiling. Yufna grew up more than 300 miles away from Fort Collins, but said that she too feels a pull to the area as the Northern Arapaho's ancestral home. Because of this, she recently got involved with the Intertribal Alliance for Hughes Landback, a group of Native and Indigenous leaders that asked Fort Collins and CSU's Board of Governors to return the 165 acres that were formerly home to Hughes Stadium back to Native stewardship last year. We reported on that at the Coloradoan. At the very least last year, the group asked any new owner of the land to respect its spirit. Here's Yufna again describing why she wanted to get involved with the Hughes Landback group. We are nobody without land. And so this becomes a very historical but it's also very political because, um, like I said, Congress wanted us, wanted our land and resources. They still do. The government still wants our land and our resources. And um, one of the things about it, as I kind of alluded before, was that, you know, after Sand Creek Massacre, they wanted the Arapaho and Cheyenne out of Colorado, out of the western part of Colorado. And so... One of the campaigns was Sand Creek Massacre. And so uh, it became political because one of the things that they did for our tribe was force our hand to sell the land in Colorado to pay for the land we live on, on the reservation we live on today. And tell me if that's normal. You know, what other tribe has had to pay for their own reservation? That's why it's important for me to understand that, and that's why it's important for me to make sure that other people understand that. After centuries of history books being written by the white settlers who pushed Native American tribes off their ancestral lands, there's been a push in recent years to correct that record, which has been one-sided for so long. In 2019, Colorado State University formally adopted a land acknowledgement statement acknowledging that the land it was built on is the traditional and ancestral home of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations. CSU, then Colorado Agricultural College, was established in 1870 thanks to the Morrill Act, which granted land in each state to house colleges and universities focused on the agricultural and mechanical arts. A few years ago, High Country News surveyed and located more than 99% of all Morrill Act acres, identified their original indigenous inhabitants, 
and determined that 10.7 million acres were stolen from about 250 tribes in the 1800s. Here's Jason again. You know, people are really interested, like in land acknowledgement statements and CSU, you know, credit theirs, um, and acknowledge these are tribal lands, the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute, and. You know, to me, a lot of people, just, they, they hear that, but they don't understand what that means. And they certainly don't understand, you know, this thousands of years of connection to this place. And I, to me, the power of archaeology is I can take you out into a field and show you an archaeological site that you would just thought was a blank field. And all of a sudden, it's populated with people. And archaeology, as well as working with the Senate communities, can do that and repopulate these lands into places that, you know, people lived on and experienced, you know, as part of their home. And so for me, it's always saying you know, Fort Collins didn't begin with Fort Collins. You know, it didn't become with the establishment of Camp Collins or the military camp. That's everybody associated. This place has been used for 13,000 years. That's really important. So the next time you're walking along the Pruder River or venturing into a Fort Collins natural area, I mean, anytime you really go anywhere in northern Colorado, Know that so many people once walked in these places, took in these views, lived off of this land. They knew every nook and cranny of northern Colorado. And for many of their descendants, these centuries later, it still feels like home. You just listened to the latest episode of The Way It Was, As I said earlier, Native American history in Northern Colorado is boundless, and I know I missed some key points. But thank you so much for tuning in to hear about even this small slice of this land's earliest life. I'll be back in the next few months with another episode of The Way It Was. Until then, history nerds.